hear a reading from Psalm 16. Protect me, O God, for I have taken shelter in you. I say to the Lord, you are the Lord, my only source of well-being. As for God's chosen people who are in the land and the leading officials I admired so much, their troubles multiply. They desire other gods. I will not pour out drink offerings of blood to their gods, nor will I make vows in the name of their God. Lord, you give me stability and prosperity. You make my future secure. It is as if I have been given fertile lands or received a beautiful tract of land. I will praise the Lord who guides me. Yes, during the night I reflect and learn. I constantly trust in the Lord because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So my heart rejoices and I am happy. My life is safe. You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful follower to see the pit. You lead me in the path of life. I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, still us right now in this moment of silence. Holy Spirit, speak to us about this word. Jesus, give your bride what she needs today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as, as a boy, there, was, there were very, very few things I liked more than following Notre Dame basketball. Uh, I grew up a few minutes from Notre Dame's campus. My buddy's family had, had season tickets. And so we'd, we'd roughly go to, you know, 11 or 12 games each year. It was, it was truly my obsession as a little one. And I, I set up a radio next to my bed so I could listen to all of the away games called by Jeff Jeffries, which is easily the best name of a talking head in sports radio history. And no, I'm not that old to have only listened on a radio. We just didn't have cable. But that's, that's how I listened to the away games. And as a Notre Dame basketball fan, I was often disappointed because they lost a lot. You know, Notre Dame's not a basketball school. Everyone knows it's a football school. And so they were regularly bad. That is, until 2001, when this kid out of Indianapolis from Pike High School by the name of Chris Thomas decided he wanted to don the blue and gold of Notre Dame. And overnight, Chris became my hero. Like, no good players ever wanted to come to Notre Dame. And he chose to stay in state and play for the Irish. And so he was my hero. He just seemed like the coolest, most collected guy. And he took Notre Dame from being a really bad team to being slightly above average. <laughs> but that felt like incredible exponential growth. You know, one of my proudest moments as a little boy was, was meeting Chris. Um, you know, I gave him a high five. I was super shy. I got him to, you know, give me an autograph. Um, I still have that autograph in my garage at home next to a little, like, child-size Chris Thomas jersey that I've kept all these years, kind of with the thinking, it would be so fun to pass that on one day. Like, he was my favorite. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll preserve this jersey. And, and, and Chris never became an all-time great, you know, that, that autograph. 
in my garage isn't worth anything. You know, Chris, Chris never even made it to the NBA. But, but that didn't stop me from absolutely idolizing this guy. You know, even after Chris Thomas left Notre Dame, I would still, like, wear his jersey and pretend I was him in the driveway. You know, every, every year when the school basketball season would come around, I would buy the Nikes that Chris Thomas wore. And our school colors were purple and gold, but I had to wear blue shoes because that's what Chris wore. I looked ridiculous, but, you know, I look like Chris. And Chris had this, uh, this tattoo on his, on his right bicep. Um, and I remember it pretty distinctly. It was three lines. Um, it, was, it was across and under the three lines said, I will trust the Lord. He is at my right hand. And then in big, bold letters, it was, I will not be shaken. And so I would sharpie that on myself <laughs> before basketball games. You know, I, I would put it on my, my forearm, though. I thought that was a cooler place for a tattoo. And because Chris believed it, I believed it. And, you know, I remember uh, I would watch some games with my dad, and he was an admirer of Chris as well. You know, he was the only good player we had. I remember once my dad said something to the effect of, like, man, nothing ever bothers this guy. This guy is just, like, stable out on the court. And I remember thinking, well, of course, I will not be shaken. Like, that's, that's on his arm. And so I wanted, I wanted to be a Chris Thomas kind of person. I wanted I will not be shaken to be very characteristic of the life I was living. I wanted to be a Chris Thomas kind of basketball player. I wanted to be a Chris Thomas kind of person. And I wanted to be a Chris Thomas kind of Christian. I wanted the person about whom it could be said, he is not easily shaken. I will trust the Lord. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. All of these words came out of Psalm 16, what we read today. Well, as it turns out, living up to your heroes is hard. Living up to the standards that seem to be presented in Psalm 16 have proved harder still. You know, in, in this psalm, David, David says some really lovely things, but it feels like a lot to live up to, right? Right? Like, Bailey, you can, you can throw the list up. This is, this is what we get in Psalm 16. This is, how, this is how David describes his spiritual disciplines, his, his spiritual attitude. He says, I will praise the Lord who guides me. During the night I reflect and learn. I constantly trust in the Lord. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart rejoices. I am happy. I experience absolute joy. And you always give me sheer delight. What a, what a standard is that? That's something I wager Chris Thomas couldn't even begin to approach, let alone me, ever, any day. Like, honestly, does this seem like a realistic, consistent spiritual attitude to have every day? And if this is true of anyone in the room, if, this, if you live this way, if you know exactly how to, you know, hold up these spiritual characteristics, can you show me how, and I'll probably start wearing your Nikes in the driveway? Like, it's a lovely... It's a lovely sentiment, but like honestly, is that is that the point of Psalm 16? 
to kind of hold up David's spiritual attitude, you know, show his rhythms as, of devotion and generate this as a standard for each of us? Well, if it is, if that's what this is for, it would then seem to make the other Psalms written by David a scotch inconsistent, right? Like David wrote quite a few Psalms of lament. You know, as I was reading Psalm 16, that was, that was my first thought last night. Like, well, David doesn't talk like this all the time. In fact, he, he very often sounds the complete opposite of this. And I, and I read backwards in the book of Psalms to, to the 13th Psalm, another one written by David, where he says, How long, Lord, will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight? How long will my enemy gloat over me? Look at me, answer me. O Lord, my God, revive me or else I will die. Then my enemy will say, I have defeated him. Then my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. That's not what's on the tattoo. But I trust in your faithfulness. May I rejoice because of your deliverance. I will sing praises to the Lord when he vindicates me. So things start to like come back down to earth a little bit, right? At least from David's perspective. When, when we read his psalms of lament, like I said, there are many. And in a lot of ways, psalms like that feel a lot more on brand for David, right? Like when you, when you consider the life of David, like yes, he was in a position of authority. Yes, he was chosen by God to be king of Israel. And yes, the Jewish people for a long time after kind of held him up as the standard bearer for the monarch in the country. But... Think about David's life. He had to flee several occasions just to save his own life. His dearest friend Jonathan was was killed in battle. He was pretty devastated about that. He had to witness a, a baby die, the baby that he and Bathsheba had together, didn't live long. He then had other kids, and like what a what a mess that was. His his daughter was raped, his son was murdered, another son kind of thought, like, it's time to put dad out to pasture and try to usurp his throne and overthrow his dad in a deadly conflict. While David sat on the throne of Israel, a deadly plague and infection kind of swept through the people, and he had to shoulder that. That was incredibly weighty for him. And then at the end of all of this, when he desperately wanted to construct a temple to God, God said, no, it's not going to be you. He said, you can't construct my temple because you are, quote, a man of blood. I mean, the, the book of 2 Samuel, which kind of details the, the life of David, is just saturated, just absolutely covered with story after story after story that is deeply painful, you know, highly emotional, and at the end of it, we see a weeping David. And yet we have things like Psalm 16. Is this just hyperbole? Like, is, is, is David exaggerating when, when he says things that were on our list? Or is he maybe kind of pausing, like, this is, this is the picture of the person I kind of hope to be. You know, kind of like, speak into existence and maybe I'll live like this. Is, is it just hyperbolic? Is it just exaggeration? No, I don't believe that's exactly what's going on in chapter 16. I'm pretty convinced it's sincere. Because you see, the psalm, though what catches our attention is like the very rosy 
second half, the psalm doesn't deny trouble. In fact, the very first two words of the psalm are, protect me. The first two words he says are, protect me. The first thought, the first entire thought he shared is about how his friends and men he admired have kind of drifted away from worshiping Yahweh, aren't enticing him to join them in their idolatry. And so Psalm 16 starts like a lot of his other lament psalms. You know, protect me. My friends have abandoned me. I don't know what to do. I don't want to follow them. Help me. Starts like a lot of his kind of, you know, emotionally tormented psalms. But then there's this pivot in the literal heart of Psalm 16. And there are two verses, verse 5 and 6, that kind of operate as a glide path from lament into celebration. I just want to read them again. This is verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 16, and they're not going to sound spectacular. They're not exactly going to jump off the page. He says, Lord, you give me stability and prosperity. You make my future secure. It is as if I have been given fertile fields or received a beautiful tract of land. And then after he says, after he speaks in those two verses, we get the whole list that was on first. You know, kind of this very, very um, lofty spiritual attitude. The one that feels, you know, unattainable for each of us to regularly hold. So, so what, what was it about that idea that kind of served as such a glide path from lament into celebration? From kind of an emotionally tormented place to just cheer? Well, this is language of inheritance. I just read, and, and I'm usually a cheerleader for the NET version. We use it here most weeks. But I think in this instance, the NIT does us a better service. So, Bailey, you can, you can throw the NIV's version of these verses up when David says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. All it takes for David in Psalm 16 to be transported from a place of pain into this very sincere mode of rejoicing was remembering inheritance. Now here's the thing about inheritance. In our day, we can, we can leave whatever we want to whomever we want, you know, it could be family members, it could be old friends, it could be people we've never met, it could be acquaintance, it, it doesn't matter. As long as, you, as long as you write up a will and then include someone's name, they are entitled to what it is that you're leaving for them. You can leave whatever you want to whomever you want, and that's a legally binding document. It wasn't exactly that way with Jewish inheritance. See, the, the, the Torah, the law of Moses had very specific rules for how matters of inheritance were to be handled. First and foremost, you could only leave an inheritance for someone that you were directly related to. It had to stay within the family. You couldn't leave an inheritance for someone outside of the family unit. And there were very specific instructions for who landed where in the pecking order of receiving, you know. First to the sons, and then to the daughters, and then to the brothers of the sons, and then to uh, aunts and uncles. There there was a very specific mode of how inheritance got handed down within the family unit. And all of this is outlined very specifically in Numbers 27 in the Torah. 
And then the other thing about inheritance, which, which is a bit more timeless, this is also kind of true of the environment that we live in, is that things that you receive through an inheritance weren't necessarily or at all earned by you, right? They were preserved by someone else, earned by someone else, in order to be then given to you. And so all of this is what David is suggesting when he pauses and says, you, you make my future secure. I've been, I've been watching the show Yellowstone lately. Um, I don't know if anyone else in the room has seen it, but the patriarch of the family, John Dutton, is just absolutely obsessed with maintaining every square inch of his ranch in Montana. You know, he has, his ranch is the size of Rhode Island, and he won't give away a bit of it. He won't sell a bit of it. Not because, like, it's his pride and joy, but because it was handed down to him, and he is determined to give every speck of that ranch to his children. He spends his entire life preserving a thing that was given to him so he can just give it away. And so what sets David off celebrating is the belief that he is waiting on an inheritance from God. And this, this says a lot, kind of in, in a Jewish environment. If you were to say, I'm waiting on an inheritance from God, you're making a pretty bold claim. You're saying, I'm in the same family unit as God. He is preserving something with me in mind. Yeah, that seems like a fitting thing to get somebody out of their emotional funk. And so what was the specific inheritance David was excited about? What was, what was kind of buoying him emotionally? Well, William E. Brown, who was a professor and theologian, uh, suggests this. He said, the focus of the promised inheritance was less on national prominence in the present and more on personal participation in the future life with God. This idea was broadened in the rabbinic literature, in the rabbinic literature, where having an inheritance or share in the world to come was a primary aspiration of the Jews. And a notable dichotomy then existed between those who would inherit the future world, and they were designated the redeemed, and those who would forfeit the future world and they were designated the condemned. And then he says, by the time of the New Testament, it was common for a person to ask a rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It became a common question of a rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's really interesting. In Matthew, we see someone ask Jesus that very question. And what a funny question it is when you kind of like pause and parse out the verbiage of the question, what must I do to inherit? Well, according to Jewish law, like, be related, end of qualification. And if you want a better place in the pecking order, be closely related. That's what you have to do. But inheritance, by definition, isn't earned by you, it's not preserved by you, it's just given to you. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I guess be related and be closely related. Now, in a material sense, that's easy. Like, you know, 
family member dies, you get stuff. In a spiritual sense, it could be a bit more complicated. I understand that. And we would answer then, well, to inherit eternal life, the way that we were meant to understand inheritance, the way the Torah talks about inheritance, the way the first law dealt with inheritance, to inherit something, you have to be related. To inherit anything spiritually, you have to be a close spiritual relative of God. And I think that kind of answers why the New Testament speaks so familiarly about our relationship with God. Time and time and time and time again, our place with him is kind of given the color of this family relationship. You know, enter the gospel. It's all family language. You know, we just finished studying Romans. Romans says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are what? They're children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. Your adoption to what? Your adoption to sonship. Kind of the first place in the batting order. The first recipient of a familial inheritance is the son. You weren't just brought into this family. You were brought into this family and given top billing. Kind of in the waiting position of inheritance. Adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit so that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs in Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, then we also share in his glory. We are sons who share in his glory. This is the reality of the gospel. We are relatives who receive what he earned. We are family members adopted, given top billing, and waiting for an inheritance. Now there's one, there's one more kind of facet of inheritance that's worth mentioning. You know, kind of a pretty fundamental piece of this whole equation in inheriting anything is death, right? Like inheritance is usually transferred when the elder dies and then he leaves his things behind. And so what we have kind of previewed in the middle of Psalm 16 that transports David from a place of lament into a mode of celebration is the realization that through death, the unearned, preserved blessing is passed within the family. Yeah, that sounds like just the thing to get David out of his emotional funk. That's the kind of thing that removes his pain from the front of his mind. And he's allowed to say with sincerity, like, you are my sheer delight. I am happy. I have cause to celebrate. And I, and I want to know more. I study. Guys, I know, like, I, I know you. It's a joy to be one of your pastors. I know that there's a lot of pain in this room, and I know those things kind of exist on the front of our mind a lot. Um, you know, I know in this room there are really difficult marriages. I know that there's those mourning loss, you know, navigating sickness, cancers, there's financial insecurity. You know, all of this and worse are in this room right now. 
And I would say that many of us probably feel more inclined to show up on a Sunday and pray the words of Psalm 13 than we do Psalm 16. Like the more true, the more sincere, the more accurate cry of our heart is, how long will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight? I think we tend to more regularly feel like people of Psalm 13. And yet, we have it right there written on our wall, well, like stickered on our wall in big green letters that we celebrate. That's the first thing. We are people of celebration. Is this also hyperbolic? Is this also just an exaggeration or maybe us posturing like, yeah, like all things being equal, that's kind of what we aspire to be? How can celebration be true of us when all this pain also exists in the room? Well, I'd say we come together and we, like David, we remember our inheritance. We remind one another that we are people of inheritance. We remember its giver and we remember how it has come to us. You know, Paul said to the Corinthian church, like we preach Christ crucified, like we start with his death. It's in his death that inheritance is passed to his children. We preach Christ crucified. And he also said, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living hope through through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And then the last thing he says is, this inheritance is kept for you in heaven. We get to be a people of hope. We get to be a people like Psalm 16 kind of says we can be through the same mechanism that David used. Kind of our glide path out of lament into a mode of celebration is remembering that we are a people of inheritance Death transferred to us the things that weren't earned by us and have been preserved by him. And the meal that we take every week is a reminder of our inheritance. It is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace that invited us into the family unit of God. And we do, we do a lot of call and response prayers here. We read a lot of things together. Um, ordinarily, that's not kind of tacked onto a sermon But that's how I want to end. Um, Bailey, if you could put the NIV version of 5 and 6 back up. I want to, all of us, pray this together. We come together in the reality of our pain, but remember with one another that we are a people of inheritance. So let's pray this with one another. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And we know, we know that we are a people of inheritance and he has made our lot secure. Lot is the language of land. He has has secured a plot, a place for us because on the night that he was betrayed, He took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. 
It's also the language of inheritance. This is mine, and I'm giving it to you. Inherit this. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood shed for you. Language of inheritance. It's mine, given for you. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim, what? What does Corinthians say? We proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. That's how inheritance gets passed along. These are the gifts of God for the family of God. And so let's receive them with thanksgiving in our heart. Let's pray together. Father, we were enemies and you made us sons. We were dead and you made us alive. We were empty-handed and you secured a lot for us. We are people of inheritance. Cause that to be nearest the front of our mind. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.